the season two finale of The Law Garage, Laura Licio, Anthony Marchetti, and I got together for the first time after a long pandemic on a Friday afternoon with some beer. The following is the full-length conversation, uncut and unedited. As a result, some parts may be offensive to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Today in the garage, we have Laura Lichaud and Anthony Marchetti. Laura Lichaud is a criminal defense lawyer based in Toronto. After articling for a prominent criminal defense firm in Calgary, Laura made her way back to Toronto where she was an associate at Bernstein Newman & Associates for four years before opening her own practice in 2013. She is a member of the Criminal Lawyers Association and acted as a courthouse representative for two years where she sat on various committees advocating for the rights of young persons charged with criminal offenses. Laura has a keen interest in the issues surrounding the expungement of criminal records and ancillary records, which has inspired her in her new role as project manager for the Cannabis Amnesty Pardon Clinic's pilot project. Laura volunteers at the Center for Social Innovation and TEDx Toronto. Anthony Marchetti defends individuals charged with a range of offenses from less serious charges such as domestic assault or impaired driving to very serious offenses such as trafficking cocaine, sexual assault, aggravated assault, and murder. He has successfully defended people at every level of court in Ontario. Anthony helped start the Recent Call Committee for the Criminal Lawyers Association and was elected to the executive position of Recent Call Director in 2015. Whether you're driving your Jaguar, shredding your Gibson, or drafting a charter application, step into the garage, listen to the experts, and get a tune. Laura and Anthony, I'd like to thank you both for joining me here in the garage to chat a little bit about your journey throughout the criminal defense. Thanks for uh, inviting me. Yeah, thanks, Marco. It's a pleasure. I'm really excited to have you both here. This is the first all-Italian edition of the oh! Law Garage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this morning when I appeared before Justice Cooper in Newmarket, I told him, because we were picking the next day, and I told him I was going back to the homeland. And he said to me, he goes, uh, oh, auguri, uh, for the uh, reporter, that's A-U-G-U-R-I. <laughs> we'll make sure that uh, that, that gets, uh, we'll order a copy of that transcript for you, <laughs> Mr. Marchetti. <laughs> so let's get started, guys. Laura, how did you get your start in criminal law? Um, how did I get my start in criminal law? Uh, or what made, what drove me to be a criminal lawyer what drove you to be a criminal lawyer okay so it started maybe in like grade two or three i started reading nancy drew books <laughs> and i burned my way through the entire you, series of really course quickly you were a nancy drew fan yeah i mean nancy drew wasn't a lawyer but her dad was a lawyer and i still watched the series <laughs> on the cw religiously shameless self-admission um and from nancy drew you know on tv i used to watch matlock um, and Murder, She Wrote. So that's where it started. But um, when I was in law school, I joined the legal clinic, student legal assistants at the University of Calgary in my first year. And I worked my way through the clinic. Um, I worked at the clinic every year. I even worked there in the summer, employed full time. I mentored other students there. And uh, I guess I can say this now because I graduated. <laughs> I spent more time at the clinic than I did going to class. So I learned, um, I learned better from a very hands-on experience. And I distinctly remember uh, going to the old Calgary courthouse one day. It was like very 1970s decor before they built the new 
downtown courthouse. Um, and I sat in one of the chairs that had like a tweed <laughs> pattern on it and it was grimy and old. And I'm like, this is where I belong. I had a moment like, you know, the skies opened up and hallelujah. And I'm like, this is, this is where I belong. So since that moment, I've always known there was no other path. Well, sometimes the, the decor of a courthouse can motivate you. <laughs> no, it's true. Did you ever think when you're at 361, sometimes you see that old furniture, like it's in the hallways or... I, I think I think 361 is a like an architectural masterpiece. Uh, and the interior decor as well, it's like straight out of the 50s. It's beautiful. I right? might have been built in the 60s, I think. It's still got that hangover from that that like modernist, you know, everything very plain, straight lines. I love it. Yeah. See, I, old City Hall is more my jam. I like it old, real old with like gargoyles and marble. So and I there, think it's going to be really like, sad when we leave Old City Hall and go to the new courthouse. There's some really beautiful old courthouses throughout this province. Tony Bryant, that's one of the reasons why Tony Bryant takes cases all over the place, because he loves going to these old courthouses. Well, when I think of Old City Hall, I always think of that picture of Jimi Hendrix uh, sitting oh, on, the, on the stairs. Yeah. And Mel it, Green used to have that in his office. Every time we walk up and down those steps, yeah. I was like, Jimi Hendrix sat here. Yeah. Jimi Hendrix sat here. Like it, when, when he was on charges, right? What, what Was it the heroin charges or was it weed charges? I don't know. I, I don't know when that picture was taken. But when you're doing um, cases in, I guess it's the west side of Old City Hall, which was the original courthouse, when there's the jury boxes were still yeah. there and the you know the back hallways for the judges to come in, you, you feel it. The, the, that was my first experience. A court was going to Old City Hall and I thought about it and never forgot that. How did you get your start, Anthony? Or what motivated you? Um, so um, when I was 18, I was arrested and charged. Um, I absolutely fucking hated how I got treated by the police and by the crowns. And um, my, my parents hired a, hired a lawyer for me, a guy named Scott Fenton. He's pretty big deal. I don't know if he was back then, but uh, I thought he was just like the coolest guy ever. It was a big deal for you. Yeah. And he was fucking, he was so cool the way that like, I remember we did, um, I've only, I've only pieced this together since, but like, so I got arrested towards the Christmas break. And then my undertaking that I was, that I basically had to sign banned me from going back to my high school. So I had to, uh, we got our lawyers, there was me and two other guys charged, um, and we brought an application in the OCJ to vary the undertaking, and it was heard at, uh, what's it, 85 the East Mall? Is it I 85? Guess. Yeah. Or 88? Whatever the court was, it, before 2201, on the East Mall. The West, uh, West uh, yeah, Toronto, Toronto West. Hmm. And the judge, I found out since, the judge was... But um, it seemed like the Crown was just running out the clock. And said, if you think we're going to stay, or if you think we're not going to stay until we finish this application and that I'm just going to adjourn it and screw these kids over, you got another thing coming. And that's basically when the Crown gave up on the application. Um, and so we were leaving, and it was like 5.30, so the court's way closed. And one of the court officers comes up and, like, tries to push us out of the hallway, like, can you guys leave? And I remember Fenton just, like, bends over, picks up his 
briefcase and then looks at the court officer and says, how about you get a fucking life? <laughs> and, I, and I was like, that's, that's amazing. Like, this is... And it, I'm not going to say that it was like a straight line from that experience to criminal defense because in undergrad, I did consider um, going into like academia. Um, after about third year, I was like, no way. But for a while, I did consider academia. And then in law school, I got sort of sidetracked. You know all that pressure that they put on you? You got to get a job on Bay Street. Yeah. You're going to be in so much debt. Uh, There's if really you want... no filter to criminal law in yeah. law school. So I did all the OCIs and I like tried, but not really. Like I can, I could go into that more if you want to hear about it, but like I totally self-sabotaged during the OCI interviews. And uh, I get it. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I essentially left myself no choice but my first choice. And, uh, yeah, here I am. There you go. Yeah. So the personal experience at a young age kind of yeah. began your drive. Yeah. And, like, uh, clients love when I tell that story because they're like, oh. You're one of us. Yeah. You know what it's like. Now you're one of them. Yeah. You know, because I've heard lots of other people tell tell this story of how they got in. Yeah. And no offense to anybody who's hearing this, who's this is your story. But it's usually something like, oh, I uh, went to university and I got a liberal arts degree. I got an English degree. And then I didn't know what to do with my life. So I went to law school. And then, you know, I took a bunch of classes in different areas. And criminal law seemed like fun. So I decided to go into it. There's some, of the, some people... Um, come that way but I think I feel like you don't last very long in criminal law if that's how you get into criminal law yeah I feel like you need that extra little push am I right Laura um I think you need a certain it's like the little salmon swimming upstream and I remember this too it's um in my fourth year or third year rather of uh fourth year I guess would be articles (laughs) (laughs) in my third year of law school when everybody was applying for jobs, I remember crying one day. I was at the legal clinic working on a theft under file or something, and I just went in a little room and I cried because I was wondering what was wrong with me. Like, why do all these other people want to work on the equivalent of Bay Street in whatever city they're in? Like, why don't I want to do this? Something must be wrong. I must be broken because I've always wanted to do criminal law. And in my class of 80 people... It was a small class size at the University of Calgary at the time. I think I'm the only one who went into criminal law. It was, you know, if anything, it was maybe a couple of us. But that's a really hard position to be in because you're you're going against the grain. But I think that's what makes a good criminal lawyer at the end of the day. You can't worry about what other people think of you. It's not a popular choice. It's uh, we defend people that... Um, other people judge very quickly and view as bad and society doesn't look at us um, with fond eyes and so Mm -hmm. that's where you learn right like when you make that decision to go against the grain and do something that the rest of your classmates are not doing or that's not the popular choice I think at the end of the day at at our core that's that's what's required to be a good criminal lawyer yeah 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 uh, I think I, from my class, I went to Queens. I think my class has three people in defense. One started out as a crown, and then he switched to defense. 
And then another one is in Ottawa, I think. But I haven't talked to her in years, so I don't even know what she's doing these days. But yeah, three people out of however many, like 100 or whatever at Queen's. But you know what, Anthony? You haven't switched careers. No, I haven't. And neither have I. Yeah. Whereas I think, yeah, yeah, a lot of our peers have had the, uh, the moment of reckoning where they've left their big firm environment or switched over to what they really wanted to be doing. Um, so there's a few that I know that made partner at like the sister firms and so on. And they, they were the people who like, you knew it the first time you met them. They were like, you're going to make partner on Bay street for sure. (laughs) Everybody else is gone. But we come together later. The criminal defense lawyers come together, in my opinion, later than law school. Because we're all kind of lone soldiers, you know, small group. Oh, yeah. That's why most people are sole practitioners. And then small group, and among that small group, several of them go to the Crown's office Mm -hmm. from law school because it's still the probably the more secure avenue. 100%. So, you know, if you have 10 people in your class interested in criminal, five are going to be Crown's, five are going to be defense, and then those defense might disseminate across various cities. And so... You know, we have to become friends later, which yeah. seems to be the case, I think. What do you think? 100%. Absolutely. But, I mean, I, I don't know if it could be any other way, right? Like, I, I, I don't really go to many lawyer parties, but most lawyer parties suck. <laughs> <laughs> not the defense parties. Exactly. <laughs> the, not the defense parties. Oh, yeah, I know. Right? But everybody else is just, like, so wound up with impressing each other and, you know, uh, acquiring material wealth and displaying it. And you're just like, this sucks. (laughs) (laughs) Laura, you're laughing, but you're not agreeing. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, I was agreeing. I just, when Anthony said, I don't go to the lawyer parties, you might've seen my eyes roll because I have seen Anthony at some lawyer parties, but then he corrected himself and said, I go to defense lawyer parties. So I'm like, okay, I get it. (laughs) <laughs> so since we haven't had the opportunity to really hang out very much during the pandemic have you guys missed it absolutely <laughs> oh my god <laughs> what are you missing what are you missing uh everything uh, i mean just the like you wrote an article about it and i loved it um just the like walking around the courthouse and being like oh hey what do you got today what's going on tell me tell me what's going on the gossip like the gossip's missing. The gossip's fantastic. <laughs> you know, I had, um, I remember I was in the uh, lawyer's lounge, a.k.a. the closet at Old City Hall one day, and a civil lawyer who was dabbling um, came, into the, <laughs> came into the closet and uh, saw all of the defense lawyers, you know, chatting on their break from running between courtrooms. And uh, I walked out of the lawyer's lounge with him, and uh, he said, you know, you guys are a really collegial bunch. Like it's not like this in the civil world. He, he saw it and he was only there for 10 minutes and he, he remarked at uh, how close and collegial the criminal bar was. Cause you know, everybody was in the old city hall lounge telling stories. And so I'm just throwing this out there for the CLA's consideration. Um, I think we can all say that the zoom court is here to stay at least for a while. And I know that when you haven't seen another lawyer that you're used to seeing in a while, you see them on Zoom and everybody smiles at each other and you try to wink <laughs> yeah. um, and hope they notice and everybody is secretly waving tiny waves to each other. I usually send text messages. Yes. 
Like I, like I saw Adam Goodman in in court not too long ago, and he had like this shaggy hair because of the pandemic. Yep. And I was like, looking good, bro. Oh. <laughs> so I think they either need to enable the chat function and make like an offshoot room. No, but that's all lawyers. recorded. No, no, okay. no, 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 no. More of, no, okay. don't put any of that in writing. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> Fine. But I think we can come up with a solution um, and we need to somehow mimic the lawyer's lounge experience. So I'm thinking we need to come up with a solution. Maybe between nine to 12 every day, there can be a Zoom room or equivalent using another platform where all the lawyers in the GTA can go I, to this particular room. This. I'm not a fan of this. It's 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 not the same. Of course it's not the same. So but... why bother? Like Oh god. Have you, have you, hold on. Have any Zoom of you been... court will be gone soon. You are I a hope, curmudgeon. I hope it stays. I hope Zoom court stays for administrative appearances and stuff like that. But otherwise, we'll be going back to the courthouse. Have you seen the new courthouse? It's almost ready. Have you been to court recently? Uh, I just did a trial at 361. How many people were there? Um, I saw Shulman, but he didn't even say hi to me. I don't even know if he knows my name, but I know his name. Um, not many people know my name, Marco. Why not? Why, why, why are you laughing about that? <laughs> why? Is that like a running joke or something? <laughs> why, don't you, why don't you tell me and our listeners why not too many people know your name? <laughs> I don't know why nobody knows my name, but lots of people, um, has it ever happened that you your name has been incorrectly stated on the record? All the time. All Marchetti. The, all Anthony the time. Marchetti. Anthony Marchetti. 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 I like Machetti, though. Machetti's a good one. Um, but, like... I should put on my uh, I should put on my business cards. Uh, Anthony Marchetti, you might have heard of me. Actually, can we just take a pause here for a moment? What? How do we pronounce my last name? Lisha. If anybody is listening, this is an instructive moment. L I S C I O. How is that pronounced? Liscio. Smooth. Thank you. In Italian, it means smooth. Liscio. <laughs> I like Liscio. It reminds me of the. Pizza commercials. Wait, what's the one that you told me about? Uh, Mark O'Shara? Oh, yeah, I get that. Around Always around uh, the middle of March. <laughs> Whenever I attend court in the middle of March, all of a sudden, everybody thinks I'm Irish. Mark O'Shara. Yeah. Okay, so tell us a bit about how, while we're practicing and we're at home in Zoom, how we're trying to make this as normal as possible when we can't be in person. Like, have you done Zoom trials? Have you had any of, the, of those experiences? I, I did. Uh, I won it, actually. I won a Zoom trial. Um, when was that? That was March, I think. I've done a couple of Zoom trials, and they've gone well. Um, I, ne- I think the default for bail hearings and trials needs to be in person again. But Why? Because it's... I mean, and this is something that I'm glad that they're building a new courthouse because going to court is supposed to be like a solemn experience. You're supposed to be impressed by the system. You're supposed to be intimidated by the system. That's how the system is supposed to work. It intimidates the defendant. It intimidates the witness. And it, that, like, it's supposed to produce authenticity and truth because of that. Um, and if... You're not in the, in person. 
And if you're in a courthouse that's in a strip mall and it's falling apart and hasn't been repainted since the late 60s, how does that instill any sort of reverence? Reverence. That's a great word for it. You know, how do you know that this person who's taking away your liberty has the, has the right to do it? You know, Laura? Um, so going back to pre-COVID time, when uh, Zoom wasn't the default, uh, there was some chatter about um, bail hearings turning into video bail hearings because the Toronto South Detention Center was built with the capacity and capability uh, because they were planning to um, do bail hearings by way of video. And I remember um, I was on a team of lawyers. We went in for a consultation to give our opinion. And I remember being livid at the time because um, I think there's something to be said for an accused person attending court in person for a bail hearing and a jurist, whether it's a justice of the peace or a judge, looking at them and seeing them in the flesh in front of them. And if they are going to deny bail, they have to look at that human being. They have to see that that human being breathes and walks and talks. And they have to look that person in the eye and say, I am denying you your freedom until you have a trial. Whereas when you put a screen between two people, uh, you sort of desensitize the experience, dehumanize, thank you. And so I think it's a lot easier to say, you're in jail, it's okay, just turn the corner and go back to your cell. I think that's a lot easier to say when somebody is behind a screen at the jail than when they are in front of you as a human being, as an accused in court. And I think we have, because the system until now has always used video court from the institutions only for people who are detained. We have that impression that an accused person who's appearing by video is appearing by video because he's not, hasn't been granted bail. And so that feeling, even though it might not be uh, the truth, that that feeling that they're in there because they deserve to be in there is something that we've grown accustomed to using the screens up until now. But, you know, the, I lost a bail hearing that was done all by telephone in early pandemic with sureties that I have used many times before representing several of their family members who I know are good sureties. But over the telephone, through an interpreter, it just did not translate. And if you read the ruling, it's so disheartening to see that... Um, the findings that the judge made, I know he whether he detained or decided to release would have not made those findings against the sureties had he looked at those sureties in the eyes because I've met these people and they did not come across genuinely by telephone. And it was a difficult pill to swallow that their son remained in custody as a result. Think about, think about um, the other official language of our country. What is a courthouse in French? What do you a call it? A palais de justice. A palais de justice. A palace. Is 1911 Eglinton a palace? <laughs> is a thousand Finch a palace? No. Anyway. I, it, no, but it's funny that you say that because I had colleagues uh, who've come in for the podcast 
who are from out of town who drove by 19, uh, uh, sorry, drove by 1,000 Finch on their way uh, from here, from the law garage, and were shocked that, that that's a courthouse. And so it's nice to see that we have a new building coming. Do you think the new building is going to be an efficient and prosperous change, or is it going to present some hurdles? I think it's going to be an absolute nightmare for about five years. Uh, but on the whole, in the long term, it'll be a major, major improvement. Laura, what do you think? Um, so I uh, articled in Calgary. So I've experienced um, a mega downtown courthouse before. They built one while I was a student there. Um, and so the Superior Court and the... Alberta Provincial Court were in the same multi-storied like glass tower downtown. Yeah. Um, and I think there's a few issues, practical logistical issues that are going to be at play. Number one, there's no parking underneath the building. Um, I believe I heard this through the grapevine, but I'm not sure. So don't quote me on this. The building may already be too small for the capacity <laughs> that we need. <laughs> um, I think it will also be there will be access to justice issues because our clients come from all over the city mm -hmm. and we all know what traffic and transit are like in the city and so uh, it may cause delays in getting things started because witnesses or, or sureties for example would be coming from the northwest corner of the city for example yeah um, and, you know, transit might be unpredictable. Yeah. I think it might cause security issues because you will have um, incompatible groups, uh, of people. groups of people. That That is my biggest, that's my biggest criticism of it, yeah. Um, in the cells in, in the basement um, that would not normally pose a security risk. But so, 361 doesn't have these problems. But the volume is less, right? That's true. Absolutely. But yeah. we already have a centralized downtown courthouse. So it, it remains to be seen. Frankly, I, I'm just looking forward to going back into a courtroom. Yeah. I was in Oh, it was so nice, man. I did a trial in front of uh, Justice Maxwell. So nice. I mean, it, it was weird because I, uh, I actually had to wear two masks. I had this cloth one on. And then they made me put one of the, you know, those blue ones on top. So it was very strange. And it's the second trial I've done in person in COVID. I did one last year in Superior Court in Brampton before Justice Andre. And even that was refreshing just to be back in the place where you work. Okay. Right? I'm going to be frank with you guys. Okay. Here's the deal. <laughs> My clothes don't fit me anymore. So <laughs> if I have to I've wear... I've actually lost weight. I've actually lost Congratulations, weight. Yeah. asshole. <laughs> um, if I have to wear real lawyer clothes to court, you know, proper proper uh, lawyer clothes, I'm going to have a real problem and I'm going to have to go get my hands on a new wardrobe. And my waistcoat is a relic that needs to be framed but can never be worn again. <laughs> you know, my superior court waistcoat, oh my gosh. I have, a, I have a different problem. I noticed the other day when I was getting dressed to go into court in person, I feel like my suits are dated now. Yeah. Even though they're not, kind of, because well, the fashion... You've always, yeah, you've always been like a bit avant-garde with your suits. I, I mean... I we, try to be. We joke about, you joke about my suits like... 
I have a gray suit, I have a black suit, and I have a blue suit, and that's it. That's, <laughs> you know what, though? You have a great pea coat. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I, I know. Well, it's because... And I keep wanting to replace it, but I like the character of it, you know? like like the, the He the... just casually throws it on and goes outside for a break. Yeah. That's yeah. why they call him the Columbo of the defense <laughs> bar. Where, where are you, the night of the murder? <laughs> <laughs> so... All kidding aside, what still excites you about the practice? Everything. Absolutely everything. Um, there is nothing like criminal defense. There is nothing like it. It is this intersection of politics, of power, of uh, the state, of psychology, of morality. It's endlessly, endlessly interesting. Laura? I have the sickness. <laughs> <laughs> we all have the sickness. We all know what the sickness is. I don't need to explain it to you. Um, you know, I'm sure we all have our moments every week, multiple times a week, where we're like, I'm walking away. That's it. I can't handle it anymore. I can't get one more 4 a.m. phone call, or I can't be yelled at by another jurist again, or, you know, whatever the case may be. But we keep coming back for more. So the question is, what is it? Is it the adrenaline rush? I think it's the fact that there is nothing at, but it's a con it's the combination of the adrenaline rush and the intellectual stimulation. Yeah. And the fact that um, most of us would probably not be very good sitting behind a desk from nine to five. Um, we've all got ants in our pants and every file is a new project. So at any given point, there's 30, 50, however many new interesting projects in our cabinet. Right. And each one presents new and novel issues so i think we are all addicted a bit to the fast-paced um environment and the change and variety there, that there's it nothing. offers us there's yeah. no i mean the highs are incredibly high like i mean i've never done heroin but <laughs> <laughs> like the high of a big win is better than better than drugs better than alcohol better than sex um, the lows of a shitty loss are terrible. And, you know, it's, there's not, I remember, I still remember my very first big win. Um, I was junior on it. It was a Hell's Angels uh, eight month jury trial. Craig Bottomley was on it. Uh, Tony Bryant was on it. Joe Irvin was on it. And my boss at the time, Lenny Hotchberg, shout out to Lenny. Um, gave me my start in the business forever grateful to Lenny um, when we I mean we didn't even win we we won on the issue we were trying to win on but everybody got found guilty anyway uh, but it, <laughs> great job that's a great, Eddie. That's a great win <laughs> it, it was so good though because the issue was they they had they had the evidence the issue was the Cray morgue right no I right? got it Every charge was crim org, and then the sorry. Every charge was whatever the case was. You know, cocaine trafficking, whatever. What? Don't bang your pen. Oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Go on. <laughs> it was cocaine trafficking or whatever it was, and then the next charge was the previous charge for the benefit of a criminal organization, and the jury came back basically guilty on almost every of the in, of the offenses and not guilty on all of the crim org. Well, that's good. See, and it was it was like that's what we were gunning for. That was the win. A lot of people don't and appreciate I, I, sorry, that sorry. the mitigation of the damage is a big win. It's us. huge, right? Like mm -hmm. the 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 client he was looking at. If he went down on the crim org, he was looking at life. 
Right. He got 14 years instead. That's a huge win. Are you kidding me? And I mean, if we really think about it, like most cases that don't resolve, don't resolve because of that one or two things that make it impossible to resolve. And so you're really just fighting that one battle sometimes. Like often a good example is like in an attempt murder case. Most of the time, an attempt murder case can might be resolved to a lesser offense. But if the crown is stuck on attempt murder, you're litigating and you win that attempt murder charge, even though your client is ultimately convicted of other stuff, that's still a win. Absolutely. You know, and it's unforgettable when, when it happens. Yeah. Laura? Um, for the listeners listening to this special Italian episode, uh, there's a lot of hand movement going on. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Marco just told me to stop tapping my pen. Yeah, there's a lot of he, there's a lot of hand out. talking going on, and I wish there was some sort of captioning system so that the listeners could get the full experience of the facial expressions and the hand movements going on. Um, I just want to point out that this case that Anthony is talking about many moons ago um, was also the first time I met Anthony Marchetti. I went. I, is this how we met? Because I have no recollection. Oh, I do. <laughs> oh so, God. There is a special elevator on the side of 361 University. It's the elevator that goes to the library and the lawyer's lounge directly. And so I was accessing that elevator and the doors open and uh, this guy comes in the elevator and he, you know, just, he had just come back from a smoke break or something. And he's like, tilt his chin and he's like, hi, I'm Anthony Marchetti. And he presses the second floor button as if I was supposed to know who the great Anthony Marchetti was. People still don't know. That's why we have him on the podcast. He looked at me like I was supposed to know who he was. Anyways, that was the first time I met Anthony Marchetti. Is that when you called, is that when you called me a narcissist? That, or was, that was a different, different day. <laughs> <laughs> but we've still hung out many times since I called you that. So, so the, just so that the listeners know about the inside joke here, we always joke around that people may or may not know who Anthony Marchetti is. Because anytime you ask somebody, like anytime I'm introduced to somebody or you, you tell them about, all they say is, oh yeah, I think I know that guy. Or yeah, I think I've heard that name before. So my funniest experience was uh, when we were at the, on that project together and we all made our submissions to protect the record and the court reporter stands up and says, I know who Mr. Shar is but I don't know who that other gentleman is. <laughs> and I was at the door walking out of the courtroom and I just stopped and I, I gave him a no, wink. No, no, you were, you were still in front of the bench, right? And you looked over with this huge smile on your face and you winked at me. <laughs> but that's how Marco always looks. I, I, have, to, I have to say, I, I don't remember where I first met Marco, but I do remember this. I do remember seeing him around the courthouse He's always got this smile on his face. And I'm like, I want to know what that guy's thinking about. Because either he's thinking about something really perverse (laughs) or he's just so freaking happy all the time. I want to be that guy. It it looks like he's always up to something. Yeah. I'm always up to something. Yeah, I know you are. I like like this job. This is a good job. Um, And, you know, for all the reasons. Like, there's some days where it's all about justice and fighting. and, And then there's other days where you had a great interaction with a client some there's some clients that you just really get along with and so those are good days there's some days where you have a good result that's a good day there's a lot of silver linings in this profession and you need to find those silver linings because 
if you just focus on all the negative, it's very hard to live your day because the person starts, in my opinion, starts to get punished from the moment they get arrested. Right? The punishment starts at the time of the arrest, facing the charge, being brought in, having to come to court, legal fees, this, that. So, you know, we can't always look, and the system is not perfect, but we can do what we can to make it better. It, in my opinion, you know, you focus on those things and you walk around with a smile on your face. Some people don't like it. They think it's uh, arrogance, but it's not. I just, I'm just happy to be here. <laughs> yeah. If you're, if you're on top, I mean, the only times I, that I don't really have a smile on my face doing this job are when I have like crazy deadlines to meet, right? Because that always stresses me out. But if I'm on top of all my stuff and I've got everything filed that needs to be filed, I'm so relaxed <laughs> when I go into court. So what you're saying is you're relaxed for like one day a year. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, like I have a thing next Wednesday. I have an application next Wednesday. You know, I, I filed my stuff months ago uh, and then I forgot about it. You're right? my hero. And I'll be walking into court, not walking into court, it'll be on Zoom, but I'll be walking into court. I'm, I'm re- I could do the arg- argument right now. I could do it right now, uh, just off the top of my head. It's one of those big wins where you really lose, but you think you win. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Laura, do you have any rituals that you go through when you're getting into corn doing something, (laughs) doing a trial? Uh, I do indeed. Um, So I actually have, uh, music is a really important part of my ritual, my morning ritual. I have like playlists assorted to by police division. Um, <laughs> what? So give us a, can, do you have some examples that we could, let's just say there's a lot of rage against the machine mm-hmm. and Biggie <laughs> guns and gangs, Biggie and rage against the machine. So what do you do? You listen to those playlists as you yeah. get ready. Mm-hmm. What about you, Anthony? Uh, pre-game rituals. I don't really have any, uh, because I do have like some problems with anxiety. So, um, if it's, if it's like usually the night before uh, a case, especially like a superior court case, I have to take a sleeping pill. Otherwise, I won't sleep. Um, so my pregame ritual is just like holding my head in my hands and just going, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> but after the case, especially if it's a win. Um, oh, yeah. Like. I've always I've always enjoyed hip hop. I've always been a fan of hip hop, but I never really understood a lot of it, especially like the more criminal element in hip hop until I got into this business and like rappers talking about their lawyers and cases they beat. It's like some of my favorite things now. (laughs) (laughs) So what do you do? You listen to it after you win? Oh, after. Yeah. Like, well, give me an example. Um, Okay. So uh, sometimes I will shout out after I'm outside the courthouse, of course, because you need to maintain decorum uh you know that line from uh jay-z's uh hova song where he says not guilty y'all got to feel me right that. don't you feel like yelling that if it, when the jury says not guilty <laughs> yeah but i don't want to be held in contempt of court <laughs> <laughs> Lord, do you have any post uh, post trial songs that you listen to that's a tough one you know, I'll, I'll, when I listen, I'll just I'll let you think about it. Mm. When I li- when I'm waiting for a jury, I if it, I typically listen to um, "Waiting on a Friend" by the Rolling Stones, because honestly, I don't need the whole jury to come through. I just need that that <laughs> one that one friend. Jury, jury waiting for juries. Uh, 
Oh my god, my anxiety through the roof. You don't through have any the jury roof. waiting songs? Oh uh, no, uh, I need like complete silence. Oh. I don't want to talk to anybody. Really? <laughs> I like the Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Waiting's the hardest part. Oh. <laughs> Listen to all kinds of stuff, Laura. <laughs> Um, I'd say the tone of the music. So I, I can't cite a specific example, but the tone after a win or the genre changes. So after a win, it's like pop or hip hop, something happy or like electronic techno. Really? Yeah. Because you want to get the No, the I need to listen. Up? I wake Laura's up angry. A, Laura's an electronic music aficionado, oh. by the way. Oh, I didn't know that. Stop telling all my secrets. Oh. Okay. I wake up angry every day. If I could be honest. You? I no. know. I know. I'm just, no. such, a, I'm just such a pleasant I, little. That's so surprising to me. So here we go. Fulfilling the Italian stereotypes. No, one step but further. you know what? If you can, if you can channel that anger into productive energy, I don't mean misplaced anger. I mean, you know, the fire under my ass is lit when I get up in the morning and I'm angry at the system um, or an injustice that's happened or something that I'm reading about that's going on in world politics um so i'm able somehow to channel that anger into productive energy and fight hard for my clients and fighting hard doesn't mean you have to scream at somebody fighting hard you can do that with a smile on your face it just means being passionate and when people see that you care it's very genuine i agree i agree i'm not a fist uh, i'm not a podium banger in court, I don't bang the podium. I don't get riled up like that. But my clients know, I think, that I care about and I want to win. So when you demonstrate that, that's where you channel your uh, your aggression. That's why I walk around uh, with a smile on my face when yeah. I'm not in court. So that's why the, the playlist changes, right? It's ang- it's rage against the machine in the morning. And then, like, I don't know, the Spice Girls or something no, uh, after a win. <laughs> on, on my way to court as I'm driving in the car, you know that song from uh, that Simpsons episode? Sunshine, lollipops, and... That's that's my pregame ritual. <laughs> I listen to um, when I got an innocent client's been convicted, Billy Joel, innocent man. <laughs> no, or uh, how do you know if your client's innocent? Sometimes you know. Sometimes you know. It's it's hard. Those are the hard ones. Even if you think he's innocent, if you lose a case where you think that your client is actually innocent, especially if it's serious, especially if it's a murder. I haven't lost any case where I thought my client was innocent, but I have lost one case where I, I'm not sure, and that one still bothers me. Yeah, it bothers you. It, it's hard to get over. Those are things that are hard to get over. Um, when I was younger and I first started going to the jails, it was almost I always used to listen to a, a Folsom prison <laughs> after I left because I felt like I had to go to the jails like twice a week, right? And I was always in jail, so I was always in there, so I just listened to that, but... Um, Laura, tell me about a lawyer that you feel privileged to have seen uh, advocate during your career. Okay, so I'm not brown-nosing, but... <laughs> well, you work for yourself, so... <laughs> right. Um, I have to say... Do you hold a mirror up in court and say, ah, <laughs> I've seen myself <laughs> litigate? <laughs> Oh, I missed you guys. Um, <laughs> just so you know, half this episode has got to be edited up. <laughs> just so you know. There were a lot of... Anthony dropped a lot of F-bombs. Okay. Those can be beeped. Okay. So hold so, on. Let's try that again. Laura, tell me about a lawyer that you feel privileged to have seen litigate. Oh, 
wait a minute, you got to keep that in, what I just did. <laughs> you have to keep that in. Take three. Anyway, <laughs> Take three. <sighs> Laura, tell me about a lawyer that you feel privileged to have seen litigate during your career. Um, I was very privileged uh, when I moved back to Toronto uh, from Calgary after my articles. I was hired by the firm of Bernstein Newman, which is Stephen Bernstein and Adam Newman. And uh, they're both wonderful lawyers. Um, because I can only <laughs> pick one for this question, I have to say I was very privileged to be taught by and mentored by uh, Stephen Bernstein. Um, for those of you who know Stephen, He's been at this for a long time. I don't know, 20, 25 years, maybe more. Well, Law, Law Garage fans would know him from yes. Paul Cooper's episode in season one, and he's a friend of the podcast. Yes. Um, Stephen is just as passionate about his work today as he was when he graduated. Um, he cares about his clients. He has very loyal clients. It comes through in the way he advocates for them. Uh, he prepares uh, amazingly well. Um, I'm just so blessed to have learned under him. He's very patient. He's got a lot of time for mentorship and teaching young lawyers. And if you ever have a question uh, about a legal issue, uh, he's always somebody you can call. And to this day, I still call Stephen out of the blue and or show up unannounced in his office <laughs> and ask him, uh, any any questions I have, and he always makes time for me. Um, so that that would be my answer, Stephen Bernstein. Anthony, what lawyer do you feel privileged to have seen litigate throughout the course of your career? So, um, if um, I mean, I've had I've had the opportunity to see quite a few people in action that really changed or influenced how I. Uh, wanted to practice that I I mean uh, I straight up stole stuff from them um, if I don't mention Craig Bottomley he's gonna like judo chop my head off next time he sees me <laughs> so Craig's one of them uh, I saw Alan Gold argue in 11b amazing right like just just the force of the guy's presence is unbelievable um but the answer, I actually haven't seen DeMarco. See, that's another guy who's going to kill me if I don't mention them, Anthony DeMarco. But I actually haven't seen him in court. Uh, I haven't seen him in action, although we might have a case next year together. So we'll see what happens. Um, but my answer's got to be, I think, Tony Bryant. Tony Bryant is the definition of a defense lawyer. He... He's so natural in the courtroom. He doesn't give a shit. He does what he wants. He objects to whatever needs to be objected to. He's fearless. Um, a criticism that I might have of him is that he goes a bit too far. Like if he shaved off like 10%, <laughs> he'd be perfect. But the attitude that I was able to absorb from Tony. Highly influential on my career. Both um, of your answers are 
active lawyers who are still practicing. So I encourage anybody listening, if you have the opportunity to uh, experience either of these individuals in court, you should take that opportunity and sit and watch them uh, hone their craft. I, I've had the benefit of seeing both in action. And, uh, and I agree wholeheartedly with both characterizations. Let's take a little bit of a left turn here. What movie, Anthony, reminds you most of the practice of criminal law? Um, now, this was in the questionnaire, this question. And I don't remember what my answer was. But in general... Movies about criminal law suck and have nothing to do with it. Two movies that stand out, though, are uh, this movie from the 70s with Pacino called And Justice for All. This is, uh, have you seen that one? Yeah. Have you seen that one? No. So this is the one that at the end, uh, the judge is like, you're out of order. And he goes, no, you're out of order. The whole trial's out of order. The whole courtroom's out yeah. of order. Yeah. I think that this movie is the most accurate depiction of criminal defense practice in in cinema. It's not perfectly accurate, but like there's the part where him and his buddies are in the bathroom at the courthouse and they're like gossiping about the judge who got charged. Like that's that's criminal defense right there, right? In the bathroom at the courthouse, laughing it up. Um and then the other one and I enjoyed the movie. It's very Hollywood in certain respects, so it's stupid. But in other respects, and this is the one that I get most often when I tell people I'm a criminal lawyer. They ask me, oh, is it anything like this movie? The Lincoln Lawyer. The Lincoln Lawyer is fantastic. Like, especially that scene where the biker, like, pulls him over on the side of the road and then hands him a stack of cash through the window. Happens to me at least twice a day. (laughs) Where he says, uh, your honor... We can't proceed today because oh, yeah, uh, yeah, the witness, the, Mr. Green. Yeah, but he's like, yeah, uh, is, you, you haven't paid me. Yeah, you, you, can't, you have to represent me anyway. He's like, oh, yeah, you think so? Let's come watch. Uh, Your Honor, we can't find Mr. Green. Oh, really? Trial adjourned. <laughs> <laughs> Laura, same question. Okay, so I'm going to say my cousin Vinny because, first he's of all. two youths. They, two youths, yeah. First of all. Is there something legally inaccurate about that movie? No, he even had a voir dire. He had a <laughs> voir dire in that movie. Secondly, I love that dire. scene where Marissa Tomei is the expert. I mean, I, I relive that scene in my bedroom in a mirror all the time. That was 12 years before the Court of Appeal decided Abby. <laughs> <laughs> and she qualified as a, as a layperson expert. Um, so I would say there are some accurate aspects to my cousin Vinny and also see the way he was treated because he was he was a lawyer in a foreign jurisdiction right. don't you find we're treated that way too when we go to far off lands far off courthouses yeah, far off lands like Peterborough yeah and they're like oh those Toronto lawyers yeah. are here it's like the same thing and I'm not even wearing one of those suits that he was wearing you know the maroon ones with the bell bottoms and stuff I mean, but that's how I feel sometimes so I would say my cousin Vinny but in terms of TV shows I, I hate that like that like, I'm not here to steal your client, man. Like, I, I got retained, and that's why I'm here in Hamilton. Stop giving me the stink guy. You're here to run a trial. Yeah. T-R-I-A-L. Yeah, have you heard of it? Oh, yeah. <laughs> but, 
far as TV shows go, The Wire. Yeah. Which I know all criminal lawyers love. But, I mean, the defense lawyer was not depicted so great in that. And I think that's part of the problem as to why we're misunderstood. Because he's the pop only, culture... He's the only character in that show that is one-dimensional. He's just a money-grubbing Jewish guy. Middle-aged Jewish guy. Like, everyone else has, like, so much depth to them and nuance. But no, the defense lawyer is just a money-grubbing Jewish guy. You know, uh, by the way, Omar passed away this week. The actor who played Omar, which is very sad because Omar was one of the most robust, interesting, well-developed characters on television. But in terms of our clients' lives and the things we read in Disclosure and the realness of it, um, you could take Baltimore and that could be any city. That could be Regent Park. That could be, um, you know, that could be Driftwood. That could be... It's not that bad in Toronto. Like Baltimore, those the the slums of Baltimore are like, they're like Damascus. You know, they're Damascus during the Civil War. But in terms of what's happening, how it happens, the way police officers develop grounds for a warrant, in my opinion, is the most significant part for our benefit. And I remember specifically what blew my mind, which you you never really understand, is that they're actually physically typing the search warrant in the same room as the other police officers. And that visual makes you start to question some things that appear in the affidavit when they rely on other officers. Because if there's an inaccuracy when they're relying on another officer, all of a sudden I I think back to the wire and I said, I've cross-examined the police officer said, was Mr. Officer so-and-so in the, CIB at the time? Oh, yeah, he was. Well, why don't you just ask for clarification if he's right there? Which you don't think about it until you see that visual. But in terms of the drug dealing and the ruthlessness and also that element of trying to get out, that Stringer Bell character, mm. always trying to figure out a way to kind of not be in it forever. Well, because like guys in the life, they, they have three options. They have a jail cell, they have the grave, or they have get out of the business. Like, there's, there's no long-term success in the life. Well, the problem is um, many people say, you know, I'm going to get out when I reach this goal. I'm going to get out when I reach this goal. And they always get out a day too late. Right. That's very true. If you have a day that you want to get out of the life, you get out six months before that day because if you're waiting for that day it's going to be too late yeah where do we go eat um laura when we're at old city hall oh my goodness um well i guess one of the benefits of old city hall is that there are a plethora of options around compared to let's say a thousand finch um you know i've had the Typical, when you don't have a lot of time, you go across the street to expectations. Um, but they're good. They, like the club sandwich is pretty good. Yeah. Expectations is good. But I mean, if you want something fancy, there's something down Bay Street called Le Gabardine. Oh, yeah. Le Gabardine is, is good. Yeah. Um, Little French bistro. Yeah. I'm not sure if it's open right now. Oh, I don't I, even know if it's French. Is it French? I think they're trying to go for that appeal but i had a good grilled cheese there once (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, but I will say, I guess, public service announcement. There is a little cafe, the Trinity Square Cafe, that is right behind Old City Hall. It's near where the Marriott Hotel is. There is a church there. Uh, I'm not sure if it's open right now, but if anybody ever gets the chance and doesn't know it's there, it is a cafe, um, and they serve lunch, and it is meant to teach the employees that work there, um, have often been homeless before, um, and it's meant to teach them skills that they can then use uh, to find employment elsewhere. So they learn skills about working in the restaurant business and such. When was the last time you were down in that area? been a while anthony so like months and months and months i had my trial at the beginning of august at 361 okay you win you know how hard it was to find somewhere to eat everything's gone everything's shut down the noodle place it's gone which one the Sansa noodle place you showed me to sansate ramen i couldn't find it no it's there i, I couldn't find no, it's it it's not gone it's there what when when was the last time you were there i was there Yes, uh, the other day. I didn't so eat, then where I the hell is it? I didn't eat there because there's a line, but I, cause there's still a line. Well, at the beginning of August, I couldn't find the place. Do you know what else just opened? Cafe on the Square. Fantastic. <laughs> Cafe on the Square is my go-to. Cafe on the Square is great. They, hey. make, they make wholesome, good food. I think it's the best cafeteria in Here's the city. what yeah. I will say. First it's fantastic. of all, I've had many a good espresso with both of you there. Yeah. But more importantly, the problem with Cafe on the Square is you got to watch what you say. Oh, yeah. You got to look over the left there, shoulder yeah. and you got to look over the right shoulder and you got to see who's in the booth behind you because if you start running your mouth, that is the day that the person you don't want to overhear you I, will I, be sitting behind you. But you know what's I good about 100%, that? percent but you know it's still about a great having, place to eat. Go ahead. What's sorry. good about having to do that is you don't talk shop yeah. when you're there, which is a good excuse to not uh, talk about work over lunch. Yeah. Sometimes you have to do that. Yeah. Can I tell you a funny story about Cafe on the Square? Sure. Not funny, just really random. So I was there one day just reading a book. I was waiting between court appearances for an hour or so. And I was approached by a couple um, who were getting married at City Hall. And they wanted me to be a witness to their ceremony. That's fantastic. Did you bring a booth? Did you do it? <laughs> did I you did. Bring, did Excellent. You they also, they also uh, chose another man who was reading um, at the library next door. And I actually had the occasion to run into them on more than one occasion after this. So um, while I was out and about on the town. So it was, uh, I, I always wanted to this day, like, did I have a certain look on my face? Why did they pick me? Maybe. But you're going to have to baptize their first child. <laughs> have you noticed, have you noticed that people will like, when, especially when you're in like your professional looking clothes, that people will approach you and ask you, questions like for directions the time you know i'll be it, there'll be like six people and they'll ask me and i've figured it's like well i'm a i'm a white guy in a suit so i, I guess i look harmless so they Do you ask respond me. by saying where were you the night of the murder <laughs> <laughs> no i tell them the time or the directions that they're asking me what the fuck <laughs> laura Lisho, how do you answer the question how do you defend those people or one of those variations? Okay. I've thought about this a lot. Okay. This is, I'm going to be really serious about this one. Okay. Perhaps even a little academic or biblical, biblical in the academic sense. Um, look, one of the oldest stories ever told, the basis for a lot of 
religions or Christianity, Christianity offshoots, Catholicism, is the story of a trial. It is the most famous trial in the whole entire world, and it's replicated in hundreds of languages. Witnesses swear on the story of the trial while they are in court, okay? Um, and so, you know, these are things, these are questions that I had as a little precocious four-year-old Laura. I'm sure it struck me one day, like, why didn't Jesus have a defense lawyer? Why is the defense lawyer missing from this story? And, you know, the defense lawyer is markedly one of the important characters missing from that story. And then, you know, little four-year-old me was like, well, if Jesus had a defense lawyer, then maybe Catholicism or Christianity wouldn't have been invented because then he would have been acquitted because he was innocent. Jesus, so. But Jesus was a defense lawyer. He was defending the downtrodden, the prostitutes, the... You know, so how do I defend those people? You know, you've got to, you've got to think to yourself, what if I have, even if you really don't think they are, what if this person is innocent? What if this would be the greatest injustice for this person to lose their liberty? And so even though that might be the 5% of cases or 10% of cases, we always have to be cautious about that and um, protect the process, protect the fairness, protect an accused person's rights, because you could have that person in your hands relying on you and you might not know but on this question i've also thought about this quite a bit i think that what we need so that people stop asking us that question is i think we need a rebrand we need a professional rebrand um criminal defense lawyer is actually a misnomer we don't defend crime we don't defend criminals we don't defend bad people or immorality what we do is we defend rights we defend a fair process. Um, and so if we just changed the language and we started calling ourselves civil rights lawyers, which is actually more appropriate to what we do, um, people would have a totally different perspective on what it is that we do. Like just changing the language of what we're called civil rights lawyers, it, it um, offers a whole new perspective and um, I think society might understand more accurately what it is that we do on a day-to-day -day basis. Anthony, how do you answer the question? How do you defend those people? Um, so, I mean, it really depends on who's asking and it depends on my mood and it depends on where I am. Um, sometimes I'll just tell them to F off. Um, if I'm in a sort of funny mood, like a, a stock answer that I like to use is that, uh, I have a project, I have a personal project to destroy society. And I figured out that the best way to do that was to try to keep criminals on the street. So that's why I, I do the job. So I'm, you know, only one person laughed at that one, but I always laugh at it. Uh, I give the, the, the stock answer which is, you know, that uh, I'm defending the presumption of innocent innocence. I'm not defending the crime. You know, I don't go into court and tell the jury that child pornography is actually a good thing. Like, no, that's not what I do. Um, or I, 
I try to explain to people how their rights are won for them on the backs of people they consider to be bad people. Like if you are driving down the street and you're pulled over by a cop and your car is searched without any reasonable grounds to do so, and you are a law-abiding citizen and you don't have a gun on you, you don't have a drugs on you, you will never see the inside of a courtroom because they, they found nothing. So the fact that your rights were violated by this police officer will never be adjudicated. You're only going to get in front of a judge and have the limits of your rights adjudicated if you're a criminal, if you're guilty, if they found something. Uh, people, don't, people don't look at it like that. I try to explain to them that um, the police have their own agenda, that they're not your friends, that they're an institution in society. So, like I said, it depends on my mood, because sometimes uh, I'll just say, oh, it's to defend the presumption of innocence. And then other times I'll go into a lot of detail about that, and I'll start talking about how um, the idea is that if the guilty guy can get off because there is insufficient evidence to prove him guilty, then the theory is that when the innocent guy gets charged, not if, innocent people are charged all the time. So when the innocent guy is charged, he also will get off. That's the idea. Yeah, and, and um, you know, we go through through periods of history where certain things face prohibition and then become legalized. For example, alcohol, um, cannabis. So imagine all of the people that during the period of cannabis prohibition were unfairly targeted by the police, um, namely and disproportionately indigenous persons, um, persons of color, and then all of a sudden this becomes legalized, simple possession, and now they're faced with um, a criminal record for the simple possession of cannabis that continues to haunt them for the rest of their life. Um, how, how many people are still in prison right now for you know, high-level marijuana trafficking in Canada? People that got like 10 years. I don't know. Do you know the number? I don't know the number. Oh. But I think we can both say, Anthony Marchetti, that there are a lot of innocent people that do get um, charged. And so defense lawyers play an important and vital role in the system. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Well, tell us, tell us about what, this. What, do you, what are you referring to, Laura? Tell us about this, Laura. Tell us about this Cannabis Amnesty Pardons Clinic pro pilot project. Okay. Um, so Cannabis Amnesty is uh, an organization um, uh, you might know some friendly faces on uh, the board, Anna Maria and Anna Jor, Stephanie DiGiuseppe. Both friends of the podcast, both yes. La Garage guests. Um, as well as many others. You love saying that, friends <laughs> of the podcast. You love saying that. Well, they've both been on the podcast. Yes, wonderful, wonderful people. Um, they uh, were fundamental and instrumental in starting Cannabis Amnesty, which is an organization that advocates um, on issues uh, related to 
um, cannabis, the legalization of marijuana, but more importantly, the fact that prohibition adversely affected, disproportionately impacted, um, and was used as a gateway for police interaction um, with particular groups, racialized groups, indigenous peoples, and per persons of color. And so they were adversely affected more so than any other group by prohibition, uh, marijuana I, prohibition. I had a police officer straight up admit that to me once, that he was, he was upset. Not upset. Upset's not the right word. But he was wondering what the police would do if marijuana was legal, how, how they would get grounds to harass people. Well, I remember when I started practice in uh, 2009 when I was called. Uh, there were a lot of cases. I used to call them the magic joint cases. And uh, those cases, in a nutshell, they're cases where the police would say in their notes that they approached my client, who happened to be black, because they were smoking a joint. And then that became the gateway for them to illegally search them. And then maybe they found a knife in their pocket and then arrested them for having a flick knife failing to comply probation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so the marijuana joint used to be the gateway to other charges. Um, and I call it the magic joint cases because that was always the premise upon which the police started the interaction. But then when you looked at the evidence, they never seized the joint. The joint always went missing, the magic joint. Um, and so, you know, that's an example of um, prohibition being used in a malicious manner for racial profiling. And so this clinic, going back to Marco's question, uh, I am working on a, I'm the project manager for the Pardon Clinic pilot project that is being run by Cannabis Amnesty. And what we are doing is we are putting together a pardon clinic to assist those with simple cannabis possession records and those with even non-simple cannabis records um, to help them apply for their pardons. Bill C-93 came into effect a couple years ago, um, and it allows for a streamlined process for those with a simple marijuana possession record to apply for a record suspension. Um, there are an estimated tens, tens of thousands of people in Canada that would be eligible for um, a pardon under this stream, but as of 2020, I think the statistic is only 458 people had applied and only something like 279 people, this is as of August 2020, were successful in their application. And I might be off by a couple of numbers there, but I, I think that's the stat. And the reason for this is the process is complicated. It's convoluted. People have to line up in different places. They have to ask for documents that they don't know about. Um, and the parole board requires original documents, not photocopies. And therefore, um, people who might suffer from homelessness or people who move around a lot, they, they might get halfway through the process, they lose their documents, they have to start all over. And so we're coming up with a clinic to um, get those numbers up and help people who are eligible for these pardons to uh, fill out their applications and be successful at their, at their pardon application and help them reintegrate into society, help them restore their sense of personal dignity, um, yeah, so that's, we hope to launch this clinic sometime next year. We will be looking for volunteers next year. Um, we're always looking for volunteers. So I'll if anybody there. is interested, uh, you can check out Cannabis Amnesty's site, cannabisamnesty.ca. I can be reached at pardons at cannabisamnesty.ca, or you can email volunteers 
at cannabisamnesty.ca and we would love to have your help. Um, it's very meaningful work and you'll really help a lot of people through this process. So I do invite you to come join us on our mission. Thanks, Laura. Before we end, we um, go to this uh, Brown and Dunn aspect of the podcast where if any guests feel that they deserve to ask me any questions that I've asked them, they can. And Have I'll you read that recent case by, I think Justice Watt uh, wrote it, where he basically says, like, T- take it easy with this Brown and Dunn stuff. Like, what, what are you guys doing? <laughs> No, I haven't read it. So if that's the question, the answer is no. <laughs> Laura? Marco. Yes. Um, listen, I I'm, I'm, don't mean to brown nose here, but I'm going to be straight. You have always been uh, somebody I looked up to. You've given me lots of words of wisdom in um, my legal career. Um, and I do listen. <laughs> When you, when you tell me things and I've just, I've always found you had a really balanced approach. Um, you know, you would always tell me about the importance of balance and making sure you had a file load, uh, that you could manage. Um, you've always been an advocate of a lower volume, uh, practice. If you can swing it, um, you always make time for your friends and your family. You're very generous with your time and with your mentorship. So, I'm wondering, um, what, where does that come from and, and what drove you to the practice? Well, that's a question. That's, uh, that's a good many question. questions. That is a very <laughs> good question. Um, I just got into criminal law because it's what I feel that I know how to do. I like always liked being the underdog i've you know i'm the youngest in the family and i just felt that as an underdog you come in and you fight for people who can't fight for themselves i was a victim of bullying a little bit when i was younger but not to the extent that it caused me any severe hardship it was a type of more of um being picked on here and there, but I was end up becoming friends with most of those people. Just that part of growing up, but I always felt that those same bullies victimized other people in ways that weren't a- where they weren't able to get past it. And so, looking at that, I always said to myself, you know, I was able to get past the bullying in the sense of you know didn't really have an effect on me. And if it doesn't really affect you, then you know you basically take away the sword from the bully. But when I watched other people get bullied and they were affected by it, then I felt that I had to step in and use my new relationship with my former bullies who are now somebody else's bullies to limit their bullying tactics. And so that was my start and it was at a young age. And I remember doing that and basically talking people out of being a bully. And now I feel like just naturally, as I grew older, I went to law school. I didn't think I was going to be a criminal defense lawyer. You know, I got lucky into it. Somebody just tipped me off that they thought I'd be a good criminal defense lawyer. It got me a position working as a student for a lawyer in Ottawa. And I don't know, I just really liked it. I did well in criminal classes. But when you get into criminal law and you 
have mentors who have been there for you and you really appreciate the opportunities that were given to you, then you always feel that if I can impart that on other people and just be there for other people as much as I can, maybe they will feel what I feel about this profession, which is it's a good job, it's a good profession, it's hard, but it's an important profession. And so I want other people to feel the way I feel about it, which is people have told me, you always seem to be the type of person who actually likes what you do for a living. And I, I don't, get that a lot too. Yeah, and I don't think that other people feel that way. They don't. They don't. Can you imagine that? And, and I'm not just talking about... Like, think about how lawyers. much, how hard you work, how much right. time you put in. There are people that put that into their jobs and they hate every second of it. And that's the, and that's the thing. And the reason why we like it is because we, uh, what we talked about in this podcast with highs and lows and you feel those adrenaline rushes, but you also feel like it's a type of job where you feel blessed. We get paid what I consider, you know, a lot of money for given where I come from and my friends and people I grew up with, I feel like we make a lot of money. Even if you're just a doing all legal aid, you're still making more money than the average person out there to do a job that is important and to do a job that we really like. And so, you know, you want other people to appreciate it. And I appreciate this job and I will want to demonstrate that appreciation by being there for other people and making time for other people and basically doing projects like this where other people can develop a certain level of appreciation for this job so that they can pay it forward to others. That's simple. You know, I, I I heard a story once, a joke that it goes: um, crowns and and judges have uh, retirement parties, uh, defense lawyers have funerals. And when I was told that joke, the implication or the the point of it was disparity in finances. You know that judges and crowns get these awesome pensions, and defense lawyers don't. Defense lawyers end their careers broke, and blah blah blah. I don't think that, I mean, that might be true for some people, but like, look at Joe Blumenfeld, you know, God rest his soul. The guy kept practicing into his nineties. Do you think he needed the money? No, because he loved it because this job's incredible. <laughs> Anthony Marchetti and Laura Lee I can't thank you enough for taking the time to come to the law garage and share your experiences with our listeners. Continuing legal education can take various forms, and I believe that there's something to gain just from talking to our colleagues, which is something that you both know I've really missed throughout the course of this pandemic. Um, before we go, is there anything either of you would like to plug or at least let us know where we could find you? Uh, I have nothing to plug. Uh, Laura, did you want to... Uh did you want to plug something? Um, there is something I want to plug. Uh, I am working with an organization called Cannabis Amnesty. There have been a couple of guests on the podcast before, Stephanie DiGiuseppe and Anna Maria Anenajor, who also work with Cannabis Amnesty, so I'm sure they've said a few words about the organization. Uh, I am specifically the project manager for the Pardon Clinic pilot project. And so what I am doing is I am putting together a pardon clinic that assists clients in applying for a record suspension for simple marijuana possession records, as well as other cannabis-related offenses. Um, and the whole reason for this clinic existing is, as you might know, the pardons or record suspension process is extremely difficult. 
It's extremely convoluted. You have to go to different places to get different documents. Um, and so what we want to do is provide people with the extra support they need to get through the process, get all the documents they need, fill out their applications correctly, and successfully um, receive a record suspension. As you know, cannabis prohibition legislation unfairly and disproportionately targeted certain members of society and certain groups, specifically Indigenous persons and persons of color, and we want to rectify that um, with this clinic and provide services that help those with cannabis-related offenses reintegrate into society and restore their sense of dignity. We would love to see you all come out and help and volunteer. If you're interested in doing so in any capacity, you can email me at pardons at cannabisamnesty.ca or volunteers at cannabisamnesty.ca. I'd love to hear from you, um, and I'd love for you to come out and help in any capacity you can. Thanks so much. Thank you, Laura. Thanks for coming, guys. Thanks, Marco. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Law Garage podcast. If you're new to the podcast, please check out season one and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at The Law Garage. Our production crew includes executive producer Jason Cooper and associate producers Christina Zdow and Remy Sansonwall. The Law Garage is a Jane Light podcast production. So I think it would be appropriate to begin with a little Italian linguistics that applied to the practice of criminal law in Canada. Was that, was that racist, what I just did? Was that racist? <laughs> it's okay. We'll wave it. Anthony, I know that you have a personal mission, and that is to correct the pronunciation of the name of the defense motion to exclude evidence collected under a search warrant, which is commonly called... Uh, are you referring to a Garofoli application? Well, that's what, well, that's what the rest of the world calls or, it. Or are you referring to a Garofoli application? Look, it's very simple. You don't have to pronounce it like you're a native Italian speaker. You don't have to say Garofoli. You anglicize it. Garofoli. That's easy, right? That's, that's, yeah, right? like Janine Garofalo. Yeah. But where does Garofoli come from? There isn't even... A, oh. <laughs> so... <laughs> So I know that this is a pet peeve of yours. So, so in an attempt to... Uh, look, look how it's spelled. There's one A. So where does Gera Foley come from? <laughs> where? Where? Where do you get it from? Anyway. In an attempt to instruct the defense bar on some of the more common uh, mispronunciation of Italian cases, I'm going to do a little quiz and see if you guys uh, can answer the following questions. In self-defense cases... Where the accused wants to bring in the bad character evidence of the victim, they must bring a Laura? Um, well, what's commonly referred to as a scopoletti is actually pronounced a scopelliti application. Or scopelliti. Scopelliti. Yes, but not a scopoletti. Again, we have this mysterious A that just ends up in the middle of the word when it's not there. Anthony, if, you, if you're bringing an application for a stay of proceedings for lost evidence, then you must bring a... 
Carousella. And you have to say it like that. You have to. <laughs> Laura, <laughs> the four inferences of consciousness of guilt can be found in which case? Arcangeli. Jolie. Like Angelina Jolie. Not Arcangioli. If someone wants to look to the definition of a hostile or adverse witness, they might look at the Ontario Court of, of Appeal decision in... Figliola? Figliola. 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 Okay, last one, and then we'll get into the podcast. When you're asking a preliminary inquiry justice to discharge your client, you will most likely rely on... Um, Alex, is that our curie for 500? <laughs> Anthony, I'm going to let you roll your R's on this one. What Arcuri. is it? Arcuri. <laughs> uh, thanks for indulging me with that. Um, I hope yeah. it makes it into the episode. 